0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches.
1: How are you feeling ahead of this one? Are you, are you going to
2: win? It? Uh, we'll see.
1: Am I going to win? I don't know. Well, that was a clip from last week's episode, of Ian Boswell talking about Unbound, the gravel race that he took part in at the weekend, and, and lo and behold, went and won. My name is Richard Moore, I'm with Daniel Freib. Hello, Daniel.
3: Hello, Richard.
1: And Daniel, the question is, are you taking part in any major sports events this weekend? Speed golf,
3: perhaps? Uh, no, um, and I didn't even know that Ian had taken up mud wrestling. I saw the picture and I was quite shocked. Um, <laughs> but I was, at, do you know what, I was actually... I was actually going to do um, tick off a uh, uh, bucket list item today. I was going—I think I mentioned this on the podcast before. There's this vertical kilometer in a place called Fuyi. I'm in Switzerland today, and mm. it's not far from here. And I was going to go and do it today, but um, it was another day, yeah, another day of COVID tests, um, and that has scuppered my plans. And the podcast, to be honest, is scuppering my plans as well.
1: I'm sorry about that. It feels very odd to be doing uh, the podcast with you and you not holding up a, some kind of video camera, filming us. Got used to that at the Giro. <laughs> Daniel, you're doing a brilliant job of avoiding bike racing now, having, having immersed yourself in it for four weeks. Because you were at Mont Ventoux yesterday, a day ahead of the Mont Ventoux race today. That was my first... You're in, first you're in Switzerland now, avoiding the Tour of Switzerland. That's
3: true, actually. It was my first... Well, it is my first day um, not at a bike race for about a month. So I think I'm allowed...
1: Well, I mean, with incredible poetry, as we as we talk, we understand that Superman Lopez is away on his own on Mont Two with Carlos Verona and Enric Maas blocking behind him. Who knows what will uh, unfold there over the next 30, 40 minutes or so, but uh, maybe we'll bring you the race result later in this episode. But there's, uh, there's some poetry there because we are going to talk in this episode about the Movistar Series 2 on Netflix, aren't we, Daniel?
3: Yes, we are. Very much looking forward to talking about it and, well, I think, as we'll we'll explain later, I think we've both very much enjoyed watching it over the last couple of weeks.
1: We have. Well, listen, let's do a quick news roundup before we get into the Dauphine, because you were at the Dauphine, Daniel, and I, I feel a bit guilty because in last week's episode I called it a slightly decaffeinated affair with the absence of Pog and Rog. Um, that's kind of how it looked at the start of the week, but actually, really... An interesting race in the end, um, and I think really interesting in in the context of looking ahead to the Tour de France. But we'll get onto that um, a bit later on. News roundup. This is uh, obviously always very difficult for me. This is Lionel's job. Come back soon, Lionel. But um, well, I'll do my best. I mean, one one of the headlines in the last week: Egan Bernal positive for COVID after the Giro d'Italia. Him and his girlfriend just before they were uh, about to return back to Colombia and a hero's welcome for him, having won the Giro, tested positive for COVID, so they are now in isolation in Italy. I imagine
3: Italy. he got a few too many hugs and slaps on the back and, you know, that can't be great for avoiding COVID, winning the Giro d'Italia. If you want to avoid COVID, gi- winning the Giro is probably not the best idea.
1: Well, apparently he's asymptomatic, or, sorry, mild symptoms, um, not seriously ill, but... Yeah, I mean, it it would be fascinating to know how and when he contracted it because uh, I understand there was a little bit of a party. Most teams didn't do parties, but I understand there was a little bit of a party with the Ineos Grenadiers at the hotel. Nothing too wild, but I wonder wonder, uh, how and when he contracted that. Um, Daniel, you went straight from the Giro before the Giro had even finished. You were DNF at the Giro, uh, but a starter at the Criterium du Dauphiné. Um, where, well, we we saw a very, uh, as I say, very entertaining race. Um, Lucas Postelberger won a stage and held on to the yellow jersey for a couple of days. He'd done an incredible amount of research into that particular stage, he said, um, and had really targeted it. I mean, a rider we know is talented. He kept an audio diary for us at the Tour de France last year as well, let's not forget. Um, The big talking point over the weekend was Mark Padun, the Ukrainian uh, of Barring Victorious took back-to-back mountain stages uh, on the first day on Saturday, dropping Sep Kuss once those two had got away. Um, it was a remarkable performance and he followed up the following day with another one. Um, it's raised a few eyebrows as well, his, his performances, and we'll maybe discuss that a little bit in the next part. Um, but the overall winner at the Dauphiné was Richie Porte and, um, you know, that just underlines the strength of Ineos Grenadiers, Garrett Thomas and Tailgig and Hart. They're both in the top 10 as well and uh, Thomas also on the podium. Um, and they've put together a pretty impressive string of results in one-week stage races um, with their Tour de France team this year. They've got Richard Carapaz at Tour of Switzerland just now. He will come into that Tour de France team in it. Well, it raises all kinds of interesting possibilities for the tour, where we might see a very strong team in us up against very strong individuals. Um, Do you know in the lineup, rog Rich? And Pog?
3: It's it's something I'm not really inquired about, and um, I, I'm assuming there's there's a lot of competition for places. I, I don't know if the likes of Siv Pavel Sivakov are, are in the mix again, having he of course crashed out of the Giro, but. Um, there are probably thirteen or fourteen riders who well would certainly be good enough to ride for Ineos, Ineos Grenadiers during the tour. But do you know how many places are still up for grabs, or is it pretty much? I, I think there are, there are,
1: there are about twenty nine riders <laughs> good enough. But but um, I mean, Sivikov has returned to racing at the Tour of Switzerland, and that may well be with an eye to putting him in the Tour team. Getting the balance of that team right is going to be very difficult because, you know, they were talking about three nominally protected riders in Gegenhart, Thomas and Carapaz but now you throw Richie Port into the mix as well who's really in the form of his life I would say um, and of course finished on the podium last year and it's a difficult decision because you do need you need some uh, some workhorses in there too um, you know could Sivakov be there j- purely as, as a domestique perhaps Um it's yeah difficult decisions. Um, not many places left in that team. I wouldn't have thought. Um, so yeah, Richie Port, uh, winner of the Critérium du Dauphiné for the first time in his career, and we'll talk about the Dauphiné in the next part. Um, Did you see the Belgium...
3: list? Did you see the list of the weekend of uh, one-day races or so one-week stage races that Richie Port has won? Um, haven't got the list in front of me, but. Uh, a Palmares, as far as those races are concerned, so likes of Catal- Catalonia, Paris, Dauphiné, and so on and so on, which um, only Eddie Merckx uh, had emulate or had had won before
1: him. Well, I, I mean better than Eddie Merckx, because Eddie Merckx never won the Tour Down um, Under.
3: He never won on Walling Walling the Hill, mate.
1: <laughs> he never won Paris Tour or the Tour Down Under, the two big things. I'm not Australian cycling fans, I'm not I'm not being dismissive of Down Under at all. But that is a race that Richie Port has made his own. The Elphist and Ronda, I hope I'm saying that correctly, um, that was a that was an exciting race. Tim Merlier won ahead of Mark Cavendish, but only just. I mean Merlier had a great lead out. Cavendish lost his lead out man, but finished very well indeed and looks in great shape. I would say maybe even better shape than he was in Turkey. Um so, uh, and apparently discussions uh, are imminent or have been held with Lefebvre, Patrick Lefebvre, about whether he carries on next year with uh, de Kooning, Quickstep, Mark Cavendish. Daniel's remaining tight lipped on that. Well,
3: well, we did we had some concerns about the prospects of Peter Sagan and his entourage joining de Quick quickstep and what that might mean for Mark Cavendish's future because you know their relationship hasn't necessarily been the rosiest over the past two or three years, and um well that that potential obstacle is no longer a factor, is it because Sagan is definitely not going to de Koenig. my goodness, what well, are you on a farm um there are three, my friend in Switzerland, um, who's a winemaker, um, who has three geese, Zig, Zag and Zog. I don't
1: know which one that was. It sounds like Zog to me. Um, Pog, <laughs> it's definitely not Pog or Rog. <laughs> Pog, Rog and Zog, the geese. Uh, at the uh, Tour de Suisse women, the first edition of this race, um, two stages, uh, it looked great. It was It was some fantastic racing. Hopefully it grows and and, um, expands over more days and maybe goes into slightly hillier terrain. But stage one was won by Lee Shabby um, of Switzerland uh, and Canyon Schram. Marta Bastianelli won stage two and the overall winner was Lizzie Dagnon who Shabby had out-sprinted at the end of stage one. Um, Shabby, a fascinating uh, rider who came to the sport quite late and uh, is a qualified doctor as well and went back to work in her local hospital um, during the COVID crisis in Switzerland last year. We're going to have an interview with her in this week's Cycling Podcast Femina, so listen out for that. Um, at the West de Westhoek, uh Lorena Vibas outsprinted sprinted Dora, and uh, at Unbound, the gravel race in uh, in Kansas, in the US, which I think is in Texas, Daniel. No, <laughs> it's not. Um, it's, a, it's a huge event. I really enjoyed trying to follow it and catching clips of it, and... Uh, um it was it felt very old school Um Boswell who we heard from last week uh, sort of didn't dismiss his chances completely but I don't think was expecting to win it and in fact we're going to hear from Ian later in the episode on this very point.
2: When there was five of us I was like hey guys let's just like go to the finish and you know all come across five wide because it's been such a big effort on everyone and they didn't want to do that and then when it was Lawrence and I side by side you know Couple of miles to go. I was like, "Hey, dude, let's just come across like one, two, like hmm. like Le Monde and Fignon on on Alpe d'Huez." know, um, I don't even care if your tire rolls acro- across first. That doesn't doesn't matter to me. And he he's like, "Oh no, the race wouldn't like that." Um, so, <laughs> he gambled, yeah, so he gambled. gambled and lost there. Yeah, didn't he? yeah. So we went to a sprint and
1: he outsprinted Lawrence Ten Dam uh, to win the race. Maybe maybe his biggest ever win. And I'll put that question to him later on as well. It's, the it's women's rich. race
3: so it struck me observing the coverage and the amount of coverage of the coverage people talking about how much it was being followed and talked about and this is for gravel racing we're in the sort of honeymoon kind of the, the what in for example climbing was the sort of dirt bag era when it was very kind of left field and very um well appealing for that reason almost and and um it won't take long before i'm not, I'm not going to say it's going to go mainstream you know in the next year or two but the, the it's it's on a sort of exponential path isn't it in terms of interest and coverage and and um possibly investment as well you know with world tour teams we know that ef education have already um they've They've kind of got a a gravel division and there are other World Tour teams that sent riders to that race. But, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to watch over the next two or three years and whether it loses some of its mystique and sheen and, um, yeah, all the things that at the moment make it seem like such a refreshing twist on on the sport we're used to watching.
1: I think the fact that it's, you know, that the the US is the centre of it is a very interesting development because, you know, it is... professional cycling has, has kind of struggled to gain a proper foothold in, in the US and this could be its thing. Um I mean the, the interest around Strada Bianca and the uh, Montalcino Montalcino stage at the at the at the Giro play into this as well, don't they? Um it produces spectacular racing, beautiful images and all the ingredients are there for it to become much much bigger. The women's race is won by Lauren De Crescenzo, who has a fascinating backstory too, and we'll also cover that in this month's cycling podcast, Femina, out later this week. Tour of Switzerland is ongoing. Uh, Stefan Kuhn won the first stage, time trial, and Matthew van der Poel won a very exciting second stage.
0: Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimise your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalised analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success.
1: Thanks very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. Uh, Very grateful indeed to them, not just for sponsoring Cycling Podcast, but for sending us our sensors and Daniel look at that wearing mine well, wearing um, mine now oh
3: wow on oh, the wow. back of my
1: arm um I fixed it up at the end of last week and learning a lot about um how it works what it means um it, it, there's a lot to get to grips with actually and I find it very interesting went out on a big bike ride on Sunday and it was really really fascinating to watch um does this, my- does
3: this mean that from having become a bit of a sleep bore um, I must say, um, you've now become a <laughs> glucose ball. <boy. laughs>
1: no. Oh, brilliant. No, not yet. Give it time. Um, what What is Super Sapiens? Well, it's a continuous glucose monitoring system that helps you make the right fueling choices. Over time, the user can learn how best to manage their energy resources. It takes the guesswork out of when and what to eat. I think over time is the key thing there. There is a lot to get to grips with, and I'm only just beginning to Understand what it all means and um, how it, it works is that the Abbott Libra Sense Glucose Sport Bion Sensor sits the back of the upper arm like this. A thin filament is inserted just under the skin to accurately measure glucose levels. You don't feel a thing when you put it on, or indeed when you're wearing it. And you wear it for 14 days, um, and in that time, uh, a lot of data is collected on the app. Uh, there are some teams using it already: Jumbavisma, Ineos, Canyon Shram. Go to supersapiens.com for more information. Some news concerning Super Sapiens this week, um, even if they weren't named by name, but the UCI uh, published some new rules and they their use is disallowed in competition. That isn't actually a new um, thing. That was has always been the case. Um, so it's status quo, really. They're allowed in training, um, but the UCI rule says devices which monitor Uh, physiological data including metabolic values such as but not limited to glucose or lactate are not authorised in competition, I'm sure we will return to this at some point but uh, thankfully I'm still allowed in training so um, I've not got any major competitions coming up so I'll keep mine on and learn all about it
3: You've got at least one major meal um, upcoming so you know it's important
1: to have it on for that reason isn't it? Oh certainly, always always um, but I, was, uh, I, I hadn't realised I was such a sleep board. But there you go; you learn something new every day. Uh, uh, the dolphin, well, Daniel.
3: Yes, Richard. Let's move on. To that.
1: <laughs> yeah, you you were there obviously last week. I didn't in my news roundup. Typically, I always leave something out. In fact, somebody joked at the weekend when we got the news about Ian Boswell's win that. It would be the first ever accurate race report on the cycling podcast, but I'm not sure we'll get him to run through all ten hours of of the of the race. But I, I didn't. I neglected to mention a couple of the stage winners as we were recording last week. Garrett Thomas uh, won stage five, a photo finish ahead of Sonny Colbrelli after he attacked with a kilometre to go. Alejandro Valverde won the next day uh, for Movistar before Padun's double at the weekend. Um, again, we might return to. Valverde a bit later on when we talk about the Movie Star series. But uh Daniel, what did you make of the race? Um it perhaps wasn't the dress rehearsal for the tour that it's been in the past, given that you know arguably the two favourites for the tour were missing. Um but we we learned a lot, I think, didn't we, about the strength of Venus Grenadiers and their willingness to shuffle their cards.
3: Yeah, I think it was a really exciting race for well, the the same reasons that I kind of droned on about the Giro for the Giro not being as exciting as I would have liked. That um, there was a real fight between the break and the peloton every day, which was good. There was really strong riders in the breaks every day, um, going hard for stage wins, and um, that made it pretty exciting. I I expected a little bit more chaos on the last day, a little bit more of an onslaught probably from Movistar, um, based on what the churners in the the days leading up to that, but. You know, there are there a few sort of mouthwatering takeaways in view of the Tour de France. INEOS, you know, it, it is really, it's intriguing. It's going to be intriguing to see how they use their resources um, during the Tour. And Richie, I mean, Richie Porte is kind of vis-a-vis any sort of leadership role or, or responsibility um, for the Tour de France. It's a bit of a sort of the floor is lava scenario. He just does not want it. Um and he's quite adamant about that. I mean, I spoke to him a couple of times at the Dauphiné about that, and he's, um, he's very much at, at ease and comfortable with what he's achieved now as an individual, and also he's very comfortable with not having the pressure of being the leader. But, you know it's difficult to get around the fact that physiologically he's still, and has always been, in the top three or four riders, I think, in the world. Um, That's, you know, putting it all together for three weeks is a different thing, but um, when he's on form and he's feeling good and also sort of mentally, um, he's very, very difficult to beat, isn't he?
1: Well, the sad and unfortunate fact for Richie Porte is that he's kind of found the secret recipe at the end of his career. It's precisely that Um, absence of of pressure that is allowing him to produce these performances because it was the same at the tour last year okay he finished third overall but I was struck at the tour last year by how relaxed he seemed because he was already preparing for the next and final phase of his career he was already he'd he'd given up already psychologically on being the leader it was it was his last hurrah And, and and that seemed somehow to just remove all that pressure from him
3: and I think you saw that at the weekend as well in his decision making. Um, twice, in particular, on the big stage, finishing at La Plagne on Saturday, um, when he went away and Emric Mas just stuck to his wheel. There was no sort of skittishness. There was no looking around. There were no histrionics from Richie Port. He just he knew exactly what he had to do, and he just time trialed the last few kilometres of, of the climb. And then again on Sunday, when there was a, there was a situation there that was ripe for. Um, a a sort of panic attack when Geraint Thomas crashed and all of a sudden... Port was a bit of a sitting duck because he was surrounded by riders who could have taken the general classification off him, and he still had a a nasty little finish. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't steep uphill, but it was a sort of false flat for four or five kilometres, and he was going to face attacks there, and he did face attacks, and again he ignored the ones that were insignificant. So, example for example, Ben O'Connor, um, and he went after the Astana riders notably, and with unerring sort of um, well, lack of hesitation, and again, that that to me betrayed a sort of serenity, uh, a clear sightedness that we possibly—I don't know if Richie would agree—but possibly not seen in the past.
1: No, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, they they have built uh, an incredible sequence of results in in one week stage races. That 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 Tour de France team. It's a very it's a very different. Um, sort of strategy that team will have to go to the tour and try and execute because they don't have an obvious, you know, out and out, um, leader, but they do have some interesting options. I mean, Garrett Thomas is obviously going, going well, and these time trials will suit him. Carapaz has been uh, training back home as a We'll see how he goes in Switzerland this week, but I think he'll be good at the tour and just a, a completely different kind of rider, Tailgig and is still coming back, really, from his crash at Pyrenees, but seems to be getting stronger. Looked looked pretty good on that stage that um, Valverde won and was second that day. Um, I mean, it's a very that's going to be interesting. And I think the the other you know the other big team, uh, Jumbo Visma, um, in contrast, seem well they'll be entirely reliant on uh, Primoz Roglic having you know last year gone with the famous trident of Roglic, Demula, and um a lot has changed in a year and they, they don't, they've got strong riders but they don't look like the the unit that they were last year
3: No and I mean just on Ineos we also did see glimmers we saw glimpses of challenges they may face in terms of communication, there were a couple of moments, there was the the stage that finished in the Chotras that um, Valverde won where there was a bit of hesitation between Teo Gegenhart and Geraint Thomas and they talked about that afterwards and and anyone who doesn't think that communication is difficult and it's important in bike races, especially when you do have various options, I mean, they should watch the, the Movistar documentary that we're going to talk about because um, it's a tricky thing, especially, you know, in the last few hundred metres of a race when it's not really possible to get on the radio and it's not possible either to ride to a pre-hatch, pre plan most of the time. So, you know, there will be, there will be challenges as far as that is concerned for... Um, for Ineos in the tour, I think, and um, and then on Jumbo-Visma, Rich, you're right. They're looking a lot, well, certainly a lot more brittle than they did um, one year ago. The, the, my concern, and a lot of people's concern with them at the moment, is they don't have anyone who is flying, who is in the absolute sweet spot, apart from you know Roglic. We're always accustomed to him coming into every race absolutely pinging, but. Everyone is either looks well. Everyone is either recovering from an injury or an illness. That's that's the case for Vingegaard. That's the case for Wout Van Aert. Um, Stephen Krasewa not had a great season. Sep Kuss has alternated good performances with slightly underwhelming ones um, in this quest of his and the teams to you know develop as a as a GC rider. I mean, it wasn't the happiest Dauphine for him. So. Um, it, it may just be a question of timing, and they might just hit form at exactly the right moment. But it wasn't a great week for them by any stretch of the imagination.
1: What else did we learn? I mean, I mentioned Mark Padouin. Um, there have been a lot of eyebrows raised at his two performances in particular. Um, I mean, a tone of a tone of coverage, Rich, which I, which we have not
3: seen for quite a few years, particularly in the French newspapers. Yeah.
1: Um, one in particular, Le Parisien Yeah, Le Parisien, yeah which um, which had a you know, anonymous um sources in the bunch uh, crying foul, not just um pointing the finger at Padun but the Bahrain Victorious team as well, Damien Caruso's performance at the Giro um as well. And I mean with Padun, on the one hand, he was an amazing prospect three or four years ago. Um he won a stage at through the Alps, didn't he, a couple of years ago? But I remember before that, and when he won that stage, he was being talked of as the next big thing. Yeah, and, phenom, yeah, yeah, and, and the, uh, you know his he's he seems to have um, gone missing uh, for a couple of years. So these 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 performances did come out of the blue. But had you said three or four years ago, this guy will win back to back stage at the Dauphiné in four years, nobody would have been surprised at all. I guess the question is, what's happened to him the last couple of years?
3: Yeah, and I suppose he. It didn't help that in the course of his very endearing and effervescent post-race uh, interviews, he mentioned the fact that he's lost, or he'd lost four point five kilos, which, to be honest, were visible. I mean, he he did look different from uh, a few weeks ago, but he mentioned that he'd lost this this weight in very short order. I can't remember whether he said a month or not very long at all, which. Um, sort of raised eyebrows and he talks about how he'd done that which was just essentially eating less which is you know how you how most people <laughs> lose weight um but the the manner of the victors was pretty pretty startling um i i spoke to a couple of riders over well, over the last 24 hours and sort of asked them off the record what they sort of thought and the consensus seems to be that um you know he's a guy who has been acknowledged as a big talent for quite a long time and it's pretty unfair in the the, but it's a sort of a subtle kind of discrimination um used here or employed here because you know the ukraine is not somewhere we're intimately familiar with in terms of its clubs and amateur teams and its sort of supply line of talent and um you know, Ukraine, ukrainian riders or riders from that part of the world have not necessarily in the past spoken good english so it's an it's an ignorance it's born out of ignorance really um padron is, is very much the ex- exception in terms of communication because as i said his um his interviews were fantastic at the weekend but yeah um i mean it's one that i guess we'll we will observe and you know the the the, the testers will also probably they will double down on testing not not because they have any particular suspicions, but because that, as a matter of course, is what they do um, when people win a lot of races and have fantastic results, particularly when they're slightly unexpected results.
1: Did we learn anything else from the Dauphine, in particular um, with regard to the the, the Tour de France? I mean, perhaps not given that, as I say, the two favourites weren't there, Um, but in in terms of other... Teams or anything. I mean, I think we're going to talk about movie star in the next uh, part. But just uh, as a as a unit, as a team, uh, they look pr- in pretty good shape. And as I speak, uh, Lopez has Superman. Lopez has won at Mont Ventoux by a, a, a Superman, a, cr- a cracking right. margin. Yeah, Lopez Superman, uh, two and a half minutes, two twenty six ahead of Oscar Rodriguez with Enric Mass, his teammate, third. I mean, it's never a stacked field the um, the the field for the Mont Ventoux the, challenge. In two, but
3: in the two years of its history, going back down the ages, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. never All been right. a stacked field.
1: <laughs> never, no, no. But um, Lopez has been coming from quite a distance back, hasn't he? And I mean, they, I thought they performed pretty well at the Dauphiné as well. There are signs of encouragement there for the tour, I think.
3: Yeah, they look very exciting and they look like a very sort of coherent, dare we say it, um, (laughs) bunch. Also in terms of, you know, there's obviously a Tour de France or a a unit, an A-team that has been created and they all rode together. I mean, that was, I guess it was exactly the Tour team that rode in the Dauphiné. If not, there might be one change. Um, but that was not the case of Ineos, not the case of Jumbo Visma. So um, they're all Spanish speakers and seem to be communicating pretty well on the road, seem to have different personalities. I spoke to Carlos Verona, one of the domestiques in the team um, at the weekend. He talks about how um, Valverde... Mass and, and Lopez are all very different Mass is quite serious Lopez is, uh, is apparently quite a character on the bus but they all s- seem at the moment to be complimenting each other
1: which, um, there, there yes. will be at least one change to the team, there'll be a, an additional rider because there are only seven at the Dauphine, of course, of course. Chute, uh, chute à l'arrière du peloton. cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack please That's said, PK, the voice of Radio Tour at the Tour de France interrupting this week's episode to remind me to tell you that it is sponsored by Beer 52 Now summer is here, I think, and this year is of course laden with optimism and opportunity, and in this spirit our friends at Beer 52 are offering a free case of craft beer, specially curated with balmy summer evenings in mind their summer hits case will feature beer from some of the best small batch breweries in the world all you have to do is go to beer52.com forward slash cycle and cover the £5.95 postage and packing and they'll deliver eight delicious craft beers to you not only that but if you order before July the 13th you'll get two extra beers totally free beer 52's beer experts are on a mission to find the very best beer anywhere On the planet. Every month they visit a different country, find the best small batch breweries, sample their wares, and then carefully curate a case to be sent to their lucky members. If, for example, you were to have Lawrence Ten Dam round for a barbecue, and that's a joke from last week's episode, you could impress him by producing some crisp, double dry hopped IPA from Two Chefs Brewing in his native Netherlands. Another current favourite is the Elevation Pale Ale from Ireland's Wicklow Wolf Brewery. If you don't like dark beer, it's easy to choose the light option instead, or vice versa for that matter. Each case also comes with the award-winning beer magazine ferment, as well as a tasty snack to enjoy with your beer. There's no minimum commitment. You can just take the free case, try the beers and see what you think. And if it's not for you, you can pause or cancel at any time. Just go to beer52.com forward slash cycle to claim your free case of eight craft beers. That's B W-E-R, the number five, the number two, dot com, forward slash cycle. Well, Daniel, we ended the last part talking about Movistar, and I guess the big question for the Tour de France is, are they favourites for the team's classification? Because, I mean, we're going to talk about the, the new six-part Netflix series, series two. Series one came out last year with absolutely exquisite timing. Uh, we were all locked down, starved of bike racing. Series one came out, and it was it was pretty enjoyable. It was quite diverting. Series two for me is much better and it's better because so much went wrong. I mean, they had a really poor season uh, last year and we really do, it, this is a, a project that, um, you know, as we know, because we heard from Sebastian Unzué in the podcast last year, we know that, uh, that, that it was initiated by the, sp- the sponsor. Um, so you would expect a, a kind of PR exercise perhaps, but I have to say that the a lot of credit is due to the filmmakers and to the team itself because they have opened themselves up and they have they've done with this what what you're supposed to do i've no doubt we haven't seen everything not least because the gopros were wiped after one notorious stage they were del- and I, I love how open they, they were about that um and uh but it does show the team uh in in some turmoil uh and one of the i mean there there's so many takeaways from it um But one of them in the early part, and it really does build towards a fantastic climax in the final episode. But um, one of the early uh, moments is is at the Tour de France where we always take the mickey gently of Movistar going for the team's classification without perhaps realising just how much of a a goal it actually is. It's not just something they accidentally pick up. It really means a lot. And I find it quite touching to see Eusebio Unzué, who's been in charge of that team for over 40 years how much it meant to him to see his team on the podium on the Champs-Élysées at the end of the Tour de France and throughout the, the series just to see his his passion and his enthusiasm for it still after all these years.
3: Yes, Rich. Well, there are a lot of touching moments, aren't there? And really, I mean, I've watched it twice already. I watched the whole series twice already. And... Oh, man, I can't wait to well, watch it a second and a there, third um... time. There is very little in it that's not interesting, touching or funny. There is barely a wasted second, which, um, you know, as you said, the first series was very insightful in places and funny in places. And it told us a lot about the team and the functioning of the team and some of the characters. Um, But this really lays it all together. And of course... You know, now we've got to know some of the characters better than um, than we we knew them in the first series, and I suppose the team also became a little bit more comfortable uh, with the camera crew being there. The directors have certainly um, Mark Pons. The is one of the directors, Mark Pons um, Molina. I think he's from Majorca, Um he they've obviously taken more risks and as you alluded to there i mean I'm, I'm pretty astonished that some of the the scenes were were given the green light to to air particularly because of the fairly i, I don't want to say dim light they they cast on some of the sort of decisions and some of the um well particularly the the Tactics, which again has become a bit of a meme. It had become a bit of a meme over the past two or three years. Movistar messing things up. But, um, you know, Jose Luis Arrieta, the head director Sportif. I mean, there are some scenes in which he features prominently, which would have made very uncomfortable watching for him, um, I would think. And he's, he's not the only one by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, one of the themes for me of the whole series is Arieta's relationship with um, Pachi Villa who was was brought on board by the team at the start of 2020 formerly coached Peter Sagan was formerly at Bora and in his first year it seems to have had a bit of a watching brief but is uh, destined to become You say
1: watching brief Daniel I'm not sure how much he saw with his head and <laughs> his hands so much of the Well
3: series. he um yeah, and, and he's destined to become more influential. And, and I think in the series, generally, he's quite impressive. I mean, we, we watch, you know, even as a viewer, you know you're only watching snatches of of the day-to-day reality of the team. And we don't actually see Arieta interact directly with... with but what you often get is them presenting very different ideas and different points of view and that that creates a a tension I think and it's a really interesting tension and then you've got a sort of third man in that relationship which is who is Pablo Lastras who again um, was was a a prominent figure in the first series this sort of stone-faced, poker-faced well people said that he had that he seemed to have the... he had a very direct... Um, well, lethal in in some in some scenes, um, delivery in a way of well, particularly with regard to Richard Carapaz when it came to commenting on why had, he had left the team last year, as was absolutely unsparing in his analysis of that, or um, very direct. So you've got these these three sort of main figures um, in terms of direct sportifs and then above it all the the sort of overlord overseeing it all is Eusebio unthue the the longtime team manager who's completely unflappable perhaps sort of excessively so but it sometimes feels as though he could solve brexit covid and climate change with a flick of the fringe a shrug of the shoulders and a vamos a <laughs> ver um, and and <laughs> you know a lot of a lot of the the scenes and the action that again might make people look bad also end up being very endearing and and engaging you and and making you root for these characters all of them in different ways
1: i completely agree i mean yeah uh, lastrous uh, if i was riding uh for movistar i would think very carefully about going back to the team car for a pair of gloves when it was maybe like 15 degrees or 14 degrees with lastrous in the team car we haven't even talked sort of we'll about maxi andri yet but um well yeah we'll get on to to that. I mean I've seen some criticism of the team on our own Facebook group as well actually. Um I I think perhaps this does relate to the Giro where they did have a young team and there's uh you know we get a fantastic view of the decision making behind the the day that Rubio was away with Thomas de Ghen and and we can see that he was told to sit on Degan and not give him a a spell and de Ghen, um made it his mission to stop him winning the stage Filippo Gana went on I want to say it was really fascinating to see that from the team car and see the decision making that was going into that. Um, I think it's it's very easy to be critical, but I also think that it's uh, I I I I think that there will be moments like that in any underperforming team, as movie star were. I mean, these are fallible humans. Uh, it's often there's often there are often communication problems. Um, and and the fact that they've kind of laid themselves open like this does reflect well on them and does endear me as a viewer to them. Um, you know, <laughs> they are hapless at times, though. I mean, the, the day that they, they, they try to split the race up into a headwind <laughs> at the Vuelta, which sort of forms the climax to the series and the inquest into that that follows is, well, it's hugely entertaining, I have to say. Um the Giro, though, you know, we're, we were there, Daniel. It was appalling weather. Riders were very cold. It was the, the the race, of course, of the famously shortened stage when the riders protested. And, again, to just see that from the perspective of some of the very young riders who were really st- suffering and struggling with the cold um, and to see the way that Max Chiandri... And we know... I mean, we've had Max Chiandri on the podcast in the past talking about... Um, riders uh not taking rain jackets making mistakes through an experience and he's got quite a, a a clear idea about what his job is in those situations it's to kind of teach them hard lessons
3: yeah and you know we talked about i just mentioned the other director sportifs so the sort of a team with arieta and lastras and now Pachivila, and then the giro team last year the two direct sportifs were uh, chente um garcia costa and max chandry and again they're a fantastic double act because chente is the sort of inap- he's Chente's the kind of inappropriate brilliant. uncle who'll strike who'll spike your grandma's drink at a family party and laugh too loud at his own jokes but he's yeah he's incredibly fun to to be around and then you've got sort of max who i've always thought max looks a bit like uh, Ma- uh matthew mcconaughey and there's a bit of the matthew mcconaughey's in, in his whole demeanour. matthew mcconaughey's kind of Um, His character in Dazed and Confused in the 90s, um, the character of Wooderson. But Max is a slightly sort of older, more world-weary, creased-around-the-edges version. He can see the world changing, but he doesn't necessarily believe all the changes...
1: I wouldn't well, say it. it's yeah, getting worse, yeah. but it's getting he worse. It
3: doesn't necessarily see all changes progress, but you know he wears his sort of crankiness and nostalgia so coolly and so lightly. You want to take a road trip back to the past with him, sitting alongside him in the passenger seat of his Movistar star team car, and um, they're they're absolutely <laughs> fantastic together. And um, you know Max is at times he's, he's portrayed as a bit of a, a bit of a roguish. Um, um, lawless character at certain moments in that giro but again um it's very difficult to to um to, to
1: disapprove well he gets i mean he he's punished isn't he for uh, an overtly sticky bottle uh, more than a sticky bottle a kind of araldite bottle um <laughs> where where he, he manages the trick of Presenting himself as the injured party, as the <laughs> victim. <laughs> there. Uh, but I, I got the feeling with Chente and uh, maybe Jose Joaquín Ro- Rojas as well that there was a self consciousness as well about the cameras being around. There were quite a lot of references to Series One. There'd obviously been quite a lot of uh, ribbing, if I can use that word, joking banter in the peloton from other riders, other teams about about it. And and I felt that you know to to the um, to the betterment of the the series that they played up to that a bit rojas in particular another great character i mean terrible crashes at the tour and again to see that that's the other side of it to see what he was struggling with and going through um, just to get through that race um was quite incredible but he he came out of it as a certainly a character pretty spiky and um what i also enjoyed about it because it promises a third series was at the end where they they really set up the season with the arrival of Ivan Garcia Cortina um Superman Lopez and Anamit Van Blouten on the women's team and we we also are given a little glimpse inside the women's team uh, it is it's brief but it's 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 tantalizing and it's it it promises that perhaps next year they they could be a bigger part and they've had a fantastic year this year that would be quite a, an interesting story to have a bit more insight on um, but yeah, I was encouraged to think that there could be a third series with the with the emphasis on the end. On the Absolutely, as
3: far as individuals, as far as riders are concerned, I mean, it's the absolute star for me, or the most compelling character, because he's he's almost the emblematic figure of this new generation um, of of, of movie star. Of that's been that's been presented to us <laughs> as sort of going through transition, um, going through a process of reinvention. It's it's Mark Soler because because he's oh. he's the unlikeliest kind of you would never you would never guess to look at him and to hear him speak, but he's the unlikeliest chaos agent. Um, Rich, I'm going to quote a line from a Taylor Swift song. Um, <laughs> Taylor Swift's got a song in which she says, um, I swear I don't love the drama, it loves me. And that's the case with <laughs> Mark Soler. Because whenever <laughs> something goes wrong, or whenever something brilliant happens, Mark Soler is somehow in the, in the absolute thick of things. Um, you know there's there's the stage when he's in the break in Asturias in the Vuelta to um, La La Farapona and he kind of well you could say messes up the finale but David Gordu beats him in the sprint and then he pleads with, I can't remember whether it's Lastras or one of the other direct sportives, to you know, to leave him be the, the following day. that Because otherwise he's going to have to leave the welter in an ambulance. But the next morning in the bus, um, you know, there's the, the big meeting, the briefing. They talk about what they're going to do before the Angliro. And they decide how many watts per kilo they're all going to ride. And they've got their calculators out each. You know, different riders are trying to sort of figure out what that number exactly means for them. And um and it's too fast for Marc Soler and he is furious. He mid stage, mid-race, he sort of shouts back at one of the direct sports teams. I don't even know why we have a meeting in the in the bus in the morning because we just do something completely different on the road. And um
1: <laughs> and that got... <laughs> And Verona, Verona is told to wait for him and then he uh, he reports that Soler has <laughs> called him a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's this sort of standoff and Verona's then ordered back up the road because Soler won't... It seems that Soler is quite indulged as well though and, and he he's still treated like a kid. He's 28 now, I think. Um, and it, it strikes me that, you know, he, he should be running out of chances and if I ran a team, I don't think I would have Marc Soler. I would have Enric Mass, however. I mean, I, I almost can't believe we've got this far into our discussion without talking about Mass, Soler and Valverde because... They're the three uh, main characters, as far as the writers go, and Mass is just sort of cherubic, but also steely, um, incredibly very steely.
3: I think, particularly given
1: it's his first, very hard and very hard on himself, yeah. very hard on himself, um, constantly kind of reproaching himself for having made mistakes and feeling like he's let people down and and so on, and and he's very um, just kind of unassuming. Valverde is what's remarkable about him at the age of 40 is that he's he's also still kind of holding his hands up and saying he's made mistakes and he got things wrong. But at the same time, he is, you know, he sits in that front seat of the bus, which I think has a different upholstery to all the other seats as a kind of pale leather. And it's like a, it's like his throne. I mean, you cannot imagine him ever uh, being dislodged from that seat. I mean, he'll retire as a rider but still sit there and call the shots. And there's one scene towards the end where um, Unzue gets on the bus and he gets a bit of a dressing down from Valverde, you know? Um, And and Valverde is such a a linchpin in that team. and, And... you know, it was, it's telling that when he had a really bad season, the whole team had a bad season.
3: Yes, Rich, and on Valverde, again, there were just these little sort of vignettes, these just, you know, a few seconds of, um, you know, a dialogue with Mass, for example, after the, the time trial at the Tour de France, where Pogacar's just blown up the Tour and won the Tour. And, and um, Valverde doesn't know who's won, doesn't really care, and he asks Mass. And, you know, these moments are among the most revealing and the most um, sort of memorable, I, I guess, in the whole series. But the, the series is absolutely peppered with with these moments. You know, and also at the other end of the scale, um, at the other end of the spectrum, someone like Albert uh, Torres, this veteran track rider who has um, who's riding, I think, his first Grand Tour in the Giro. And this brought to mind something I said a couple of weeks ago in our press conference in the Giro. Often we're quite matter-of-fact about... You know, breaks that fail or performances that don't result in victory or success. And Torres, in this stage of the Giro, I think it was a stage in Friuli or somewhere up in the Northeast, um, he didn't win. Um, and. But he, he was incredibly emotional afterwards. And you would never, you know, if we'd been there, if we, as journalists there, it was something we would never have, have guessed or never even have been particularly curious about or interested in. You know, he probably finished sixth or seventh on the stage. Um, but again, it, it, very telling about the reality of, of life as a professional at both ends, at the, at the very top and as a, sort of uh, a journeyman pro in the sort of second or third string for a World Tour team.
1: Yeah, and, and he was, uh, he rode the Giro recently, and he was in that move with Victor Campenarts the day that Campenarts uh, won uh, when we went into Slovenia, uh, up in the, the northeast of the country. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you do become invested in in, in, in some of these writers who you're not so familiar with through a series like this. It does a great job of opening up the sport and, and making, um, well, and, these people seem like and does like it human kind beings. of
3: make you want to ride for movistar if i gave you a choice tomorrow of any if you could ride for any world tour team i think i'd choose i think i'd
1: choose movistar
3: yeah i think would I you? Would. <laughs> yeah yeah uh who would be who I would, who would like you want to, in the team car max and yeah, well, I, I would just i would like to be there on one occasion on one day from a, a classic mark solaire or well, 48 hours of 24 hours of mark solaire's Imploding and then the following day of Mark Solaire, absolute brilliance.
1: Could it be, um, you know, could this series go on for a while and then Mark Soler just gets his own series? Do you think
3: <laughs> it could be, it'll be like <laughs> um,
1: Better Call Sal and Breaking Bad? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, well, I, I recommend it. I mean, I, my one question about it, it's not a criticism, but my one question I have is I don't know what to what extent. Um, it would appeal to non-cycling fans. I'm not sure how good a job it does at really explaining the sport. That, to me, is is a strength because there isn't, as you get in quite a lot of these things, uh, too much over-explaining or contextualising. Um, but I know the context well, and people who follow cycling closely will know the context well, and I wonder if there's enough there for non-cycling fans to really comprehend That's very true That is very true, on. and
3: it's something that when I watch for example Amazon Prime's mm, all or nothing series sometimes it can be a bit tedious and formulaic the, the efforts they go to the lengths they go to to you know create a context, create a backdrop, go to the you know the, the players houses and talk about you know where they've been in their career, who they are, where they come from, what their families are like and it, it does become very formulaic um, in this case there is absolutely none of that.
0: The cycling podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science.
1: Thanks very much indeed to Science in Sport, our long-time sponsor. If you want twenty-five percent off all your Science in Sport products, maybe some some of the new tiramisu gels uh, that they're doing. then go to com and at the checkout, enter the code SISCP25 SISCP25 um, Now, a guest presenter on the podcast last week as he, as he is from time to time, and we hope um, more so in the future, Ian Boswell, former professional rider with Team Sky and Katusha Alpsen retired at the end of 2019 and um, among other things, is doing some gravel racing um, and You know, when he spoke about it last week, he did, I think he was unsure of what his prospects were in Unbound, which is America's biggest gravel race, 200 miles, 10 and a half hours of racing. Um, I remember watching the the Rafa film uh, on it last year with Lachlan Morton. Maybe Taylor Finney was riding as well and someone else. I can't remember, but it 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 was great. And I'd love to see, having spoken about the Movistar series, I'd love to see more, Film or TV coverage of Unbound as it's now known um just spectacular uh it was kind of an old school cycling experience following the race at the weekend for me i didn't I couldn't get coverage of it um so uh, watching as the race unfolded, hearing that um, Lawrence Ten and and uh, Ian Boswell were coming to fish together and then hearing that Ian had won well an amazing performance from him really, and uh, I caught up with him earlier. How's it going, Richard? Hey, Ian. How are you?
2: Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. How's uh, <laughs> everything over in France?
1: <clears throat> great, great. No, I should have I should have begun by saying congratulations.
2: Oh well, thank you. Yeah, I it mean,
1: was uh, incredible. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> surprised. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, li- I listened back to the, the the little conversation we had about it last week, and it was interesting. You didn't dismiss the idea of winning, but you sort of, um, you know, you you you. Uh, you were you were cautious in, in saying that you'd see, because I guess you just didn't know, did you? What would happen? I mean, you were going into the unknown a little bit.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, just, uh, I mean, especially when you look at the the field of riders who, who were there in attendance, you know, when you think about, you know, Matteo Jorgensen just coming off the the Giro and Quinn Simmons and Keel Reinen, and, you know, then there's the whole host of, of gravel contenders, you know, Tendam and Stetna and Strickland, um, you know, I just didn't yeah, didn't really anticipate you know you know being in a in a final sprint against Lawrence Tandem in a in a gravel race in Kansas but yeah, um I guess just a lot of things kind of fell fell my direction with, you know, not having any mechanicals and no real no real issues and just kind of mm. you know, fueling and preparing right? It all just seemed to mm. Kind of go right, which uh, very seldom happens in a bike race. Yeah, you know, more often than not, you don't win. Well, <laughs> I spent I'm, a lot of my life not winning. You know, I,
1: I tried to follow it as best I I could, um, without being able to to watch, uh, you know, pictures. And I was sort of following it on social media. It felt it felt very. It was kind of exciting following it like that because you were just getting snippets of information and. You know, it was like reports from the front line, sort of thing. And, 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 you know, mainly with uh, most of the reports are things have happened, bad things have happened to people and they've been eliminated or dropped or, you know, whatever. And, and slowly that front group is just, um, is just reduced and reduced and reduced. And, um, and I guess, uh, I mean, <laughs> somebody, somebody posted us say it would be the first time we've ever had an accurate, uh, race report on the cycling podcast. But, I mean, maybe without, without, you know, going into too much detail about the ten and a half hours that you're out there, you know, w- was that pretty much what happened? Was it a race that was, that you were able to kind of um, ride from the front, as it were, and and and, and, and gradually, and, and just find yourself there in the end, because others were, were eliminated or dropped?
2: Yeah, I mean, it very much is a, a race of, of elimination, You know, I wouldn't say that I necessarily raced from the front early on, just because, you know, it was my first time back in, in a big peloton like that, and especially on, on surfaces that are you know, far more unknown than than pavement. Um, so I hung back quite a bit, especially once we entered the first couple like unmaintained road sections. You know, prior to that we're on kind of bigger, more or less straight gravel roads, and I felt plenty comfortable, you know, moving around the Peloton in, in that circumstance. But once we hit the the rougher roads, you know, you're also more susceptible to to punctures and you know and it's Equally happens in gravel racing as it does in road racing, you know, when there's these sections, you know, if you think about like, you know, I think back to the 2018 tour when we did the, the Roubaix stage and there's, you know, the cobble stage, mm. people panic so much before and during these sections and fail to just kind of take a step back and, and relax and realize that, Hey, you know, especially in a 200 mile race, like if you come out of that section, 30 seconds behind, you're probably still going to catch on. And people were, you know, taking, what I would say, unnecessary risks in trying to, you know, be at the front or you know make that split and then you know crashing or puncturing and you know I was very conservative through those sections, just realizing you know how long we had to go and that a, a flat tire at, at that point in the race can can really derail you. Um, but you know it just it it also got way more reduced earlier than I thought. You know I anticipated rolling into that first aid station with you know fifty or a hundred riders and. Turns out it was less than 15. Mm. Um, And from there, it just kept kind of getting smaller and smaller. And then eventually, you know, it was down to to the five of us. And that was when I think for me, the race really got fun was because we had, you know, all riders that I knew fairly well. I knew they all were going to ride and and race with, you know, kind of honor and dignity. And no one was pulling any tactics where they're trying to sit on. You know, everyone rolled through the whole time. But it, it's also so different than a road race because there was like a hundred mile stretch where we almost saw no one. And you do just almost feel like you're on a, on a group ride with a couple of your friends just trying to go as fast as you can. You know, mm. like there were sections where for 20 or 30 minutes, we saw absolutely no people, no cars, no lead car, no follow car. And, you know, it wasn't really apparent until really Lawrence and I hit the the final stretch and the final sprint that you're like, oh, we're going back to where we started. And like, this is a race. Because for so long you're just out there rolling through with with five riders, um, and almost disconnected from what's actually happening. And in, in you know they're at this this race, which I've learned now is has an incredible amount of of media attention. Um, but for the longest time, you're just you're just out there in the middle of Kansas riding around on on these dirt roads with you know. Good dudes and and riding fast, which is which is always fun.
1: I think that that's the that that hits at the appeal of it, though. That you, you do feel you're sort of in char- uncharted territory. Um, it, it sort of goes back to cycling's roots in a way. I mean, for for those of us not that not too familiar with it, I mean, you mentioned sec- sections. I mean, you know what what's the, what are the gradations in the the road surface like? Does it go from almost like road to really quite rough? Um, and and another question I want to throw in there because we've spoken a lot about you know what kind of riders does gravel suit. Um, you know, did you learn much about your own abilities to handle these different surfaces? And also, I guess the length. You know, the length made it unusual too. I mean, did you also learn um, maybe new things about your your powers of endurance there?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to the surfaces, you know, it really is like you know, I just came out with this new kit with Specialized and it's called Surface Studies. And, you know, it's so, you know, it's so relevant to, you know, to gravel racing because they're constantly changing. You're constantly evaluating what is beneath you. And you, when you think you're on a road, you know, in, in a typical road race, more or less the surface stays the same. You know, sometimes you have a, maybe a cobblestone section or, you know, the, the road surface changes, but how you ride those surfaces largely stays the same and how you corner and how you kind of, you know, navigate, you know, a roundabout is more or less the same in, you know, France as it is in Spain, but, you know, the roads were constantly changing with every, with every mile, you know, the, the main roads tend to be, you know, fairly, you know, I don't want to say smooth, but, you know, there's kind of two paths, you know, where cars have kind of cleared the, the larger stones off the side, but then the, the unmaintained sections, which there was probably a total of maybe twenty twenty 20 miles of like roads that were, you know, would have been maybe mountain biking back in the 90s you know where it's you know it's rocky it's rough you know something like a a jeep track um you know there's river crossings and that's where the the desire and the need to like really take a line that you find is best for you and that's where you know you're most susceptible to to puncturing or dropping a chain and you know making those mechanical errors um you know those were definitely the areas of which i was the most exposed because you know i'm i'm less familiar with with those surfaces and and riding those roads at speed. Um, but yeah, you, you know, you learn and you kind of figure out, you know, where can you, you know, what's, what's the right the pace for you to kind of maximize your speed, but minimize your risk. And that's ultimately, I think these kind of calculations that you, you take in, in road racing, but, you know, probably more in particular gravel racing of, you know, maybe this line is faster, but it's, you know, more risky just as far as, you know, potentially puncturing versus, you know, okay, I'm going to take a little bit safer. I might lose some, some time, but I can, you know, hopefully catch back up afterwards because I'm not dealing with a, with a flat tire. Um, but then there's the whole, the whole sense of the endurance, you know, very few road races are ever 10 hours, um, which is uncharted territory for me as well. You know, I, I did one ride in my life that was, was that long and I really came apart at the end. And that's where, where fueling really, really comes into play. And, you know, um it's just a matter of, you know, eating and drinking way sooner than you think and way more than you think you need, because, you know, it it really does, you know, in the last couple hours, you know, if you haven't if you haven't fueled properly, it can uh it can come back and bite you, which, you know, thankfully I was fairly diligent about making sure just to constantly be, be eating and drinking. And, you know, that's uh in an event like that is probably the most important thing, more so than even the you know, the training and preparation is clearly important, but just on, on the day being hmm. able to, you know, process and digest that much food is is so important. I think I burnt close to, to ten thousand calories, um, which is just an enormous amount of energy burnt
1: did did Lawrence tendan pay do you think for not having a barbecue uh, a few nights before the race
2: yeah. <laughs> i don't know why well, maybe i told you the other day but yeah i i cooked him a Thai green curd yeah, yeah. maybe that maybe that was his undoing was not, was not <laughs> having
1: a, a barbecue un, un, undone unbound yeah um yeah when when you know the two of you came to the the the, the finish and it there were there were, you know I was able to watch footage of that and um it was all kind of gloriously rudimentary at at the finish um you know when you you let it out when you went to sprint you know I, did you know how you were going to respond because i guess i guess it had been a grind for 10 and a half hours and then you got to produce the sprint at the end um were you confident or or how how did you think that was going to play out
2: i was not confident um i've never never won a sprint even whether it's you know a downline sprint on a local group ride you know i'm very seldom competitive in in sprints
1: fortunately Lawrence tend i might be able to say the same i don't know (laughs) yeah
2: i I came to the finish with the right with the right guy (laughs) um but yeah i mean i i think sprinting after 10 and a half hours is, is much different than than sprinting you know after two hours or after an hour and a half um you know i i mean i was fully expecting him to to come past me and i was just waiting for it and there was a moment when he kind of pulled up you know close to next to me and then started to fade and i was like oh wow like i actually just want to sprint um, which is which is shocking um and looking at the the power file and i just did a, a podcast with a with an american kind of training podcast um and yeah, I mean, I didn't realize this, but the the power I actually did produce in that sprint was about the best sprint I would produce even fresh, which is a surprise to me. You know, I broke a thousand watts, which is something I don't do very often. I can't just go go outside and and break a thousand watts. So to be able to do that that late in the race probably is a, uh, you know, a sign to just like actually having fueled properly throughout the you know, the ten hours and you know saving energy where you can and 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 colin strickland i mean i'm taking this quote directly from him but and i think it's really good for for people to hear that you know gravel racing and especially an event like unbound is like you just want to be spending one dollar bills like if you have a hundred dollars in your pocket you want to be carrying one dollar bills and just slowly you're paying you know every time you can spend a one dollar bill it's much better than throwing away a five dollar bill or a ten dollar bill and it's just this analogy and i and i thought about that during the race like anytime you can you know spend a smaller denomination you know if you if you have a flat and you have to chase like you just threw away a ten dollar bill and so if you can just keep spending ones all day you're going to go a lot further than you know spending these larger
1: well larger and, bills yeah and, and then you know you go and have a thousand dollars in your pocket at the finish it, it turns out i mean you're you're playing <laughs> up the importance of feeling and so on, but you know it shows your ability to i mean you know you obviously spent um many years in the world too and often in a, in a sort of team role um, I mean, and I, I—I made the the comment in in our newsletter this week that um, it, when when a lot of people would have thought you know your career was more or less over, it, it might be your biggest win. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I mean, which is so ironic, you know. And I, and you know, I, I guess I just didn't fully grasp how big this event was from a you know from a media standpoint and just like a prestige standpoint. You know, I knew I knew these gravel races were big and and important, but you know, it, a, it definitely is probably the most, I guess, prestigious win. Um, and multiple people, you know, my brother's like, Oh, how much money did you win? I'm like, I want a belt buckle and a, and a cattle brand, you know, a 200 (laughs) brand, you can brand a cattle. I'm like, and that's so cool. You know, that like, there's, it it does mean so much and yet it doesn't mean anything, you know, it's, it's, which is this, I mean, it means something, but it's just so funny how, you know, and I got messages from, you know, Richie Port sent me a text message and said, congratulations. And it just, coming from my past as a world tour rider, it just, I couldn't comprehend that Richie Port just won the Dauphiné, which in my mind is, you know, one of, probably the you know, the fourth most important race in my in my like hierarchy of races after the three Grand Tours. You know, the Dauphiné is such a beautiful and you know iconic race. And here, Richie Port won that. And it's texting me to congratulate me about beating, you know, Two retired, you know, world tour riders in Kansas, and it just like I just it still hasn't kind of the whole kind of way in which it has played out is just mm. it's still so so puzzling to me that you know
1: well there, riders
2: that yeah
1: yeah there there goes your retirement Ian um I mean <laughs> what what does it mean for you now because you're obviously juggling different things you know you're you're living up there in Vermont you're you're working and you're doing the gravel riding is it going to alter the balance a little bit because presumably it will open doors and and create new opportunities for you
2: yeah i mean it it definitely um you know could and you know i've already noticed in the last couple days just the amount of you know people who have reached out and you know want to go on a podcast or do an interview um i assume that'll die down fairly quickly um because the news cycle is is shorter these days than it used to be um but it's something that, you know, I will have to consider, but you know, I, at the same time, you know, I have spent, you know, almost a year and a half now trying to find this balance of where I'm, you know, doing my job at Wahoo and riding in my free time and, you know, trying to be a, a good husband and, you know, looking after our chickens and garden. There's so many other things in my life that I've allowed to kind of fill in this time that, you know, I oftentimes spent for just training and you know preparing for races. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a good question. It's something I've, you know, haven't really thought about yet yet, but at the same time, you know, clearly what I have been doing is, is working. So I don't really don't necessarily find a need to, to change it, but it's probably still too early to make any definitive comment on that. Um, because, you know, I've, I've been and lived that pro athlete life and, you know, I admire it and I respect, you know, people who, who do that, but, you know it's been it's been a journey to get to where i am now and you know i i guess i question going back to that is it almost a step in not in the wrong direction but is it is it a step back rather than a than a step forward
1: what i mean what's immediately next what in terms of your your schedule of races what what's your next uh, outing on the gravel
2: yeah, I'm actually heading over to Kenya in 10 days for there's a, a new gravel stage race in in the Maasai Mara called the Migration Race. So I'm heading over there um, with Lawrence Tandam, who's also going to be attending, and Thomas Decker. Um, and it's, you know, I'm uh, incredibly excited to, to go ride in, in Kenya and just see, you know, another country in a place that I otherwise probably would never have the opportunity to go to and to be able to ride a bike Um but it, it, it's a very cool project because with with Wahoo, we're partnering with the Imani Foundation, which is an African cycling team, and they're participating as well. There's only 75 riders attending the event, and we're taking the the three best African athletes from the Imani Foundation back to the U.S. Um, later in the year for two gravel events here in the U.S. So, yeah, I'm really just looking forward to you know going over there and and racing and riding, but you know meeting these athletes and kind of welcoming them to to the U.S. later this summer and. If there's any way I can kind of help them, you know, they're, they're younger than I am, and they've never had the opportunity to really show themselves on on a world stage. So I, you know, having just won, you know, the race and having Lawrence just finished second, you know, it's so cool that, you know, both Lawrence and I are able to give this opportunity to these African riders to, you know, show that, you know, they could be phenomenally talented. And we've seen this in in endurance running that, you know, a lot of the Kenyan athletes are, you know, amongst the world's best. So if we can go over there and give them a platform to to show their ability, you know, what what better way to kind of pass on the baton to, you know, the next generation of athletes. Well,
1: that was Ian Boswell uh, showered and cleaned up after his success at Unbound over the gravel roads. And obviously, uh, well, it's opened a lot of doors for him, I think, and could even change the Uh, direction of his his career as he sort of combines work and and racing over the next year or so a hot property
3: could happen to any of us couldn't it we could discover you know Um, we could discover our latent talent for gravel riding and um you know yeah i guess a year from Um, a year from now you and i could be you know, we could be the Fraser
1: and Ali of the gravel
3: racing scene.
1: Well, yeah. I, I mean, I guess he had this the small advantage of having been good at cycling in the World Tour for quite a few years and being quite good at cycling. Um, with that, yeah, endurance base that you must have, you must need to to well to sprint like that after ten and a half hours, uh, incredible. Um, but yeah, I, I look forward to watching that side of the sport grow and and hopefully being able to follow it a bit more closely, um, as I'm sure i'm sure lots of people do um daniel we should wrap things up for this week what's next for you um bit of a a holiday some recreation
3: recreation yeah some
1: <laughs> recreation i'm not gonna what does that what 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 is that secret um, the recreational activities
3: um 99.5 percent of what i do in my private life is secret so i won't <laughs> <laughs> what's a 0.5 percent this podcast <laughs>
1: <laughs> great excellent and um, well if you're on holiday will you be able to join us for the podcast uh, next week? yeah i'll find a way i'm sure brilliant excellent well until then enjoy your recreation
3: thanks Richard. thank you
1: thanks daniel bye to become a friend of the podcast or to sign up for our weekly newsletter go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Our theme music is by Glass Pear and this episode was produced by Adam Bowie.